Live from Bates Motel, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. This is episode 22. Um, we're camping out in this uh, motel we found off the road. Really interesting collection of stuffed birds um, where we checked in. Um, I'm not so sure about the showers here, Nick. There's a kind of ugly stain on the floor. One of these. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm going to just avoid it. It's just not, not cool right now. No, but definitely not. With us today is um, Brian Schurschel, live with us. Yes, hello. Uh, I think that house that looks that's up there by this motel is really creepy looking, and I don't agree with going to this motel at all. I'll just uh, have it out there. No. Don't, don't blame me. This is totally Nick's idea. Well, okay, I'm paying, and I this was cheap, okay? okay. That's all I'm going to do. Know, there's somebody in the window up there. <laughs> well, keeps walking around. well, I'll take <laughs> the first watch woman. of the <laughs> I'll take the first watch of the night. Um, if you hear someone scream, um, we can go leave. All right. Uh, <laughs> not help. Assuming it's not you. I suppose it's better than the hotel I stayed at uh, out in the desert um, near the Mexican border. They had like some drug party or something. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> There's a lot of violence. In that <laughs> a lot of violence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, but welcome. This is uh, our 22nd episode. I said that already. We told you in in episode 20 that that we we're gonna start shaking things up, and we are keeping true to that. So we're gonna start with actually cinema selections first today. So we decided to start with this partly because we have Brian with us on location and we thought it would be fun to uh, talk about this movie. Plus, it's a very intriguing movie. Tim, did you have a chance to watch it? I did. I saw it this afternoon. Okay, good. Today's movie is The Night of the Hunter, 1955. Yes. I guess, Brian, give us a, just a thumbnail sketch of what, what sort of movie is this? Well, this is a chilling yet a very elegant thriller, which I believe is possibly the definitive 1950s thriller. And I want to draw a distinction between a thriller versus a horror, because a thriller is much more suspense-related, you know, as opposed to violence or gore that is used in, in various other things. And what you have is an amazing combination of many different aspects of filmmaking that have lived very well on to this day. And um, it wasn't when this movie was really released that it had such a great reputation that it does now, but now it uh, is highly regarded. and. One list that I looked at, actually, it uh, is second, only after Citizen Kane, for any movie ever made that is the most beautiful. And it's literally the list that I saw, which I believe a French magazine released it. It was the 100 most beautiful films ever. This is number two after Citizen Kane. That makes a lot of sense because it is probably one of the most beautiful black and white cinematography of any film that I've seen, and certainly at least in a very long time gorgeous some just gorgeous imagery in here particularly i love the scene when the kids are escaping on the boat that was just pure magic yeah. we i guess we should mention that while we're talking thriller there's a, also a lot of it's hard to box this movie in that it's it's told from kids point of view largely mm -hmm. and there's a lot of it i guess i heard the word uh, idiosyncratic somewhere describing this film that there's just lots of interesting little uh things that set it apart from your normal movie it's an expressionist film. That would be one way that I would describe it. But also, amazingly, we the order that we're doing these in, we again run into German expressionism. <laughs> uh, I thought of that. It's, did you recognize maybe some of it? 
You got the you got the heavy symbolism on the knife constantly in the mm-hmm. when the in the the fists the love and <laughs> a lot of it even goes down to the way that rooms are the way that you look at the rooms in the house how like in the uh, the attic or not the attic but whatever that room is that where uh, that the one bedroom scene oh yeah where it looked like there was this big uh, point at the top of the room like a templeish kind of room mm-hmm. and it, it was this was a very normal house but just the way that especially the way that the cinematographer worked with light and the use of shadow in in the photography I mean, and i genuinely can say photography in this movie it's mm-hmm. it's genuinely photographed as far as how well it is the, well, the guy who did it he is the same guy who did the cinematography before the magnificent ambersons which is done by wells and he said that uh, only two directors truly understood how to work with light and the importance of light. And those two people were Orson Welles and Charles Lawton, who was the director of this movie. It's the, it's the only movie that he ever directed in his time. Before we get much farther, let's give a little um, plot summary so that people can grab onto something. It begins where there is the two children who are probably the focal point of the, of the film besides our main villain. They are, uh, what ages? Not very, like, 10 for the boy? Maybe. I was thinking the girl was closest, like, closer to six. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, so he's a little bit older, a few years older than her. And, uh, their father has, uh, just committed a robbery and actually killed two people during the robbery of, uh, $10,000. And he decides to leave the money with them after he is chased by the police right to the kids. And they actually see it happen right in front of them. This takes place during the Depression era uh, in the South. Not exactly sure exactly where in the South, but it is in the South. This is during a time that was after, you know, not too long after the Civil War, comparatively. And I think it captures the life of the people there quite well, in addition to a lot of other things. And so what happens is their father, while he's in jail, runs into a man named Harry Powell. And he learns, Harry finds out about the 10,000 and he, well, he has a track record for killing widows. And it turns out that his character is based on an actual real-life serial killer from West Virginia. Ugh. And so it has a, a truthful element to it as well. And so he decides to go to the widow and the two kids and get the money himself. And he is uh, very willing to do a lot of things in order to get the money. Uh, and that is the where the terror part comes from this. He's and one of the creepiest guys. <laughs> yeah. In my opinion, he's the ultimate wolf in sheep's clothing that there ever was in cinema, possibly. Mm. He plays himself as a preacher yes. for the whole movie. And there's a lot, the townspeople are quite taken in by his very pious words. And he's really got this very, it's, it's fascinating to watch because you could, because he's trying to sound very genuine, but the audience knows he's messed up. Um, mm-hmm. The kids can kind of tell that he's messed up. I, I think this well, is one of those stories where, where the the kids come off as some, kind of smarter than the grown-ups in some ways, not in the bad sense. Yeah, in some ways more skeptical, Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Well, though the daughter does kind of fall into well, that's this spell a lot more than the son does. Due to her age, partially. Yeah. And also and due to her... Needing a for, parent. And, yes. And, and the what's interesting, and one of the many themes of the movie, is that you have the, the son trying to bear all this burden of keeping the secret about the money, taking care of his sister, you know, kind of being the man in the house. And that leads to a lot of his almost one-on-one confrontation with uh, Harry Powell. Mm. Yeah, who's who's the main protagonist in this movie? 
it, him. Yeah, just, this ten-year-old, yeah, nine, ten-year-old kid. Which is probably th- this struck me as a very unusual film for the fifties. Like it, it, it felt more modern in some ways than than a classic. Yes, and, and the suspense and the terror holds very well over time as well. The uh, approach of the of the that's what made it seem a little bit like a hunt was going on. It was a show where it flashed to them in the the ice cream shop talking about, you should get a husband. And all of a sudden it flashes to the train with the big booming music of him coming. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's scary. <laughs> and even, even that, and it, and it has that build. And then there is an actual hunt, uh, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, and, and the kids are put through a lot. And uh, it's a, an amazing uh, story. And this was, this was actually based on a novel from uh, 1953 by Davis Grubb. So the movie was released only two years afterwards, and so it looks like Lawton really picked up on the book, which it did win a good, it was up for a lot of awards and did actually win a couple of awards uh, at that time it was released. The book or the movie? The book. Okay. And so Charles Lawton was able to grab onto the book and then uh, make the film. Talking about uh, Harry Powell's thing, the thing on his his fingers, on his knuckles, he's got the letters for love, and then on the other hand, the letters for hate. And he has a story that goes with it, like as part of his preacher guys for this battle between love and hate. How how did you interpret that? H A T E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L O V E. You see these fingers, dear hearts. These fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch, and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand, left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won, and old left hand hate is down for the count. Did you notice the part where he says that he was worked out a religion between him that, and God? Uh, yes, between yeah. him and God, and it's it's his, and it's not necessarily everyone else's. And no. so he lives by his own, obviously lives by his own form of of what he's worked out in his. Well, head. that's the thing. He plays a preacher, but the thing is, it's not that he's faking it. He actually talks to God. I mean, yes. at least he thinks he does. Mm-hmm. He can always just stop and look up and. Like, oh, I know you don't mind the killings. There are all kinds of killings, but you can't stand these women folk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, within like five minutes of the film, you suddenly, you, you get this deep, like, this guy is messed up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. More than, yeah, definitely a psychopathic, but in in a way that's controlled. Maybe he sort of goes, I think, between psychopath and sociopath at times in order yeah. to get what he wants, because that's the most of anything. And the part where John Harper says, does he never sleep? <laughs> <laughs> and part of that is from the book, actually, I guess, is that he stayed up at night hunting them down. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and that was how much of a hunt it was for him. It's very appropriate. The, the book is named the same title. Yeah. It's extremely appropriate creature title both ways. <laughs> but, but, go ahead with your hate love. Well, it just seemed to me that it was interesting, especially the way he, when he's telling his, his story with his two hands and he's grappling his hands together, talking about the, like their internal struggle, it almost seems to be a sense of his struggle with himself. Yes. Not necessarily that he's trying to be good in any kind of way, but the way that he uses both love and hate to get what he wants. 
putting on a front of love, but that usually succumbs when he gets mad enough to this very, very hateful, spiteful mm-hmm. persona. Mm-hmm. Which is just talking about him getting mad. It's very interesting. There's only like two or two or three times in the whole movie where he actually shows anger. I mean, he's one of those villains that he just kind of stays calm the whole time, and when it breaks out, you're like, ah! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, I think that's what's called a brooding terror, yeah. perhaps. Uh, he encompasses that very well. And, uh, but you have to, I mean, he looks like, he, I mean, he kind of has those droopy eyes, and he looks kind of like he's, you know, not, he, he's he's a pushover in what he looks like. Kind of a sheepdogish like. look, yeah. um, almost. And, mm-hmm. and then sometimes when his eyes give that look, though, where... Yeah, he did yeah, a fellow uh, Robert. What did he say? I, yeah, where, yeah, it's Robert Mitchum we're talking about. This is, by the way, he said his favorite movie that he ever did, <laughs> and and you can see why I think. But he said it was it was perfect, and I think he was perfect for the part too. They actually asked Gary Cooper to do this, mm. and he just he didn't take it. And and considering the kind of movies that I've seen him in, I don't think it would have been typical at all. He wasn't as bad as say Henry Fonda, but it was up there as far as he wanted to do good. We wanted to play good roles relatively often, and some actors like to play with their with their typical role, but you know try to do the opposite of it. But I can see why maybe Gary Cooper wouldn't. It would have been really interesting if Gary Cooper had been in it because he would have been cast against type, like mm, right, like, sort of like Ingrid Bergman and Notorious and, yeah. and various other. I I really like the effect that that sometimes can produce, mm-hmm. although maybe not as much as maybe Henry Fonda in uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Oh, uh, where he <laughs> okay. played. Uh, no, it was the good and bad and the ugly. That's what it was, and he where he played the villain, and that was I think the only, the first time he had done that, even though he had been in movies for three decades. <laughs> uh, but it is a definite departure, and sometimes it yields good results. Back to the love and hate thing. The other interesting thing I thought about this is that there really was a very strong counterbalance to it, the villain, which you don't o- always see in these thrillers. Normally, it's you know your protagonist in this case the kids versus the evil person, but there really is. Later on in the movie, what's her name? Lillian Lillian Gish. Lillian Gish, who plays a very strong counterpart or opposite to her, counterbalance, which uh, you don't actually see very often, at least that I can think of offhand. I I love the scene where, because Robert Mitchum's character had this hymn that he was always singing, leaning on the everlasting arms. And I love, and that's kind of his theme. Whenever you knew he was getting close, you would hear him singing this. And there was a great scene where he's like, there's a showdown between the two. They don't know if he's going to attack any time during the night. And he's singing this out in the the front yard. And she starts singing the harmony back to him. This is a person who actually believes is is a good representation of the Christian faith as opposed to the charlatan. And every time, every additional time that I've watched this, every time that you first see Lillian Gish, where you notice where the camera, like, first they look at her feet and then it goes up when we first get introduced to her. And it's for me, is this very uplifting feeling because it's like, oh, thank heavens, there's somebody here to bring some some light to the hunt here and uh, offer a little protection and some actual, obviously she represents genuine Christianity. Yeah, and right? there's a lot of biblical symbolism, especially in the second half of the movie. You got the whole story of Moses and the kind of their river trip kind of paralleled and her representing Christianity and some other. The whole movie starts off with this 
uh, the quoting Jesus about false prophets and you yes. know, which is really good setup for the movie, and that's actually her right at the beginning too. Isn't yes, it, it is. Yeah, I mean, which the other story that she tells is the story of a uh, King Herod. Uh, oh, with trying to get rid of all of the all the all the two year olds are yes. under yeah yes so that uh, it would be prevented that Christ would be born mm -hmm. or, or would be stop him from yes. being king yes. yeah right and in a way he's in, in a way Robert Mitchum's character Harry Powell's kind of a King Herod in that way in that he preys upon weak and stuff weak. yeah I mean, he preys upon women and and children in this in this case and he's very willing to do whatever it is necessary. So, um, Brian, how about give us some of the iconic scenes or things that have been left, you know, have influenced film since The Night of the Hunter? I might say that uh, the, the whole, the first time I saw the hate thing, I thought of Charlie from Lost. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if it was at least this somewhere been, down the line was inspired, yeah. whether yeah, whether initially or not. Yeah, I mean, yeah. because other people, I, I read somewhere that uh, Bruce Springsteen wrote a song about a preacher with those on his uh, knuckles. It's amazing how the influence that this movie has when you see it. There were a couple of movies that I know where the characters had that as well. That was a very big symbol <laughs> in the film. It was very unique. The story itself is very unique. And we already have a very unique story. When you make the film, when you put this much effort into it and this much work, and especially with the cinematography, maybe that's where I should start. Mm -hmm. Especially the journey down the river, mm -hmm. uh, where it shows all of the elements of nature. Did you think that it was like a parallel between the kids and uh, and nature in, a, in that they are helpless or that they are... Because they are compared to lambs a couple of times in direct speech in the film, but they're sometimes they're referred to animals. Yeah, I couldn't quite make out what I thought. I mean, I really loved the scenes, but I couldn't figure out exactly what it you know might mean if you want to put in that terms. Um, in the film, the, when they're going down the road, there's a, there's a montage of shots where the in the foreground is the shore, and you, there's like spider webs or a frog or um, what are some of the other there's animals? An owl, owl and then tortoise, there were two rabbits, uh, yeah. and then there was an actual lamb, and there was a fox. Yeah, um, fox. I mean, really nice, beautiful shots of that sort of stuff. The big representation of the kids, um, perhaps as animals, would be towards the end, where there's an owl that's perched on the tree, and oh, yeah. it goes and is preying from the branch on a little rabbit that's mm -hmm. down there and it swoops down and gets it. And Lillian Gish happens to be watching it. And she says, it's a hard world for little things. Mm. Maybe that's more where I was going. Maybe not with the helplessness, maybe as much as just they're little, they're small, mm. they're definitely there's a play on how innocence, I mean, innocence is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in this this, it is. I definitely got flashbacks watching this of... But the kind of stories that you often read as a kid, when, when you're a kid, you want to read about other kids going off and doing big things on their own. It is a story of a journey. Yeah. Too. And and there's such this feeling of of the adults having failed these kids for up to a certain point. I mean, the dad puts this terrible burden on, on the son. The mom gets suckered in by this guy and then gets killed. Their uncle, who they thought he thought he could count on, he can't count on. And then the other townsfolk are just like completely... Yeah. <laughs> that brings me to the spoons. The spoons are very interesting people. <laughs> yes. they, they are the husband. The, the husband. Awesome. Yeah, the husband's <laughs> awesome. That, that one part where he says, where he gets out the what was it, whiskey or, oh, or yeah. something like that. And well, there's a little peach brandy in here. What? A man of the cloth? Well, just a sip. Well, spoon. That's for sickness in the house. <gasps> 
but he's a little skeptical. Of, yeah, of, he's about of, only of the townsfolk that yeah. is besides He has uh, a little sun. bit of an idea. He doesn't quite latch on to it. Yeah, they're all kind of... Um, lackadaisical. La- yeah, they're just kind of, well, whatever's going on is going on. They're kind right. of ignorant of... They just kind of accept things. He's kind of like, well, look, they've been gone for three days. They didn't tell anyone. That's kind of a bad thing. And it's he, kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> because there is a lot of... And Tim brought this up, and from some of the stuff I looked at otherwise, there is kind of a sense of a... A fairy tale nature to some of it, mm-hmm. especially in the journey down river, and some of the maybe even the the adults being kind of yeah. Part of iffy. it is, I think, a like a southern gothic feel mm-hmm. to it, and part of where the book, I guess, was coming from. I, this is genuinely not a movie saying that people from the south are anything or other. You know, no, you don't get that, that direction. Where this book comes <laughs> no. from, actually, is it goes and explores issues like social corruption and instability, social instability. And it was what happened in the South after the Civil War was done. And there was that long period in the South that may be called a few lost decades, perhaps, mm-hmm. in, in which things weren't in place and everything had been in upheaval. And the society had, in the South had gone through such an upheaval, losing so many in the war and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And the figure of the preacher in the book represents the corruptive force of religion in the American South, kind of the negative aspect of religion in that you can do what Harry Powell did. You were a really good showman and you had the deep, wonderful, booming voice that he had to sing and he could con people in and he could do that and and get away with it, even though his stories a lot of the time didn't make sense. (laughs) And people, and towards the end, somebody finally calls him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That does a lot of southern protect oh, stuff. Oh, female oh. Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, I, I, and, uh, I just now thought William she Faulkner. Might, well, I was thinking more Flannery O'Connor. Maybe yeah. Faulkner's southern too, but There's Flannery O'Connor of, always had the grotesque sort of versions of Christianity and stuff, mm-hmm. which I could see. I'm also thinking a little Salinger style. in here. I could somehow see. maybe like or who it was. This it was the book about the whoever it was who died, and they took this big journey to with the uh, coffin. I believe that was Salinger, but that took I don't place remember in, that, that one. That took but place might be. in the South, and that okay. was. Uh, I'll have to look that up. <laughs> uh, but we we actually did read that. It could have been. I, I don't remember offhand. Yeah, I think it was Salinger. Uh, but yeah, there's there is that Flannery O'Connorish feeling as yeah, well. Yeah, just things off and kind yeah. of exaggerated, and mm-hmm. and things just aren't in sync at I, all. I read somewhere that this was a movie that inspired the Coen Brothers, and I can I can certainly see that. Some of the other people included David Lynch, Martin Scorsese, Terrence Malick, Jim Jarmusch, and Spike Lee. So many and, different people. And this there. is the only movie that well, never directed. Yeah, he was an actor. Mm-hmm. I guess in the video you sent us, he didn't make any more because it just didn't. It just kind of bombed at the box office. Yeah, it didn't do so well. People didn't know exactly what how to categorize because it. I don't know how to categorize it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, definitely it. It called. It took a lot from the German expressionist films of the nineteen twenties. Like a lot of them were uh, Nosferatu, even Metropolis, uh, and Fritz Lang, and those directors, F. W. Murnau. Maybe even a little bit of Sunrise of Two Humans, a little bit. There was just that German expressionist edge. And the movie has a little bit of like a river flow to it, too. And it has maybe at times like a dreamy aspect. Especially when the girl starts uh, doing that little singing number. Once upon a time there was a pretty fly. He had a pretty wife, this pretty fly. 
But one day she flew away, flew away. She had two pretty children, but one night these two pretty children flew away, flew away into the sky, into the moon. It was so appropriate. It just went along with everything else. The and, number and of... I thought, how... Was, that was very smooth. Uh, yeah. Normally, something like that would not work. The number of musical transitions, like just people singing odd lullaby things for transitions was... Yeah. And they all worked and added this kind of just off-feeling or... It, yeah, it's, it's, hard, it's hard movie to describe quite. I feel like this movie came at a very interesting point in American cinema history because it was right when the production code's time was ending... So, I mean, seeing things like a villain who well, is willing to kill little children, uh, a clergy member who is, because that was a big thing for a while, that clergy were always supposed to be presented well in a good light. Right. But there was just a lot of new ideas and a lot of new techniques in this. One of the aspects of German Expressionism, or some of them are, the harsh, angular look of many of the takes. Where the camera is and then how... Sometimes there's a shadow on somebody, or they're just outside of a shadow. One part that's, that really put an imprint in my brain was when John was telling the story of... It was like a, a king? Yes, it was a king who had a lot of gold and put it away safely. And there's the shadow that's behind him, and all of a sudden that hat of, uh, yeah. of uh, Harry Powell comes into there, and it's like, oh my... <laughs> and uh, it has a huge impact. And, and clearly Lawton like Orson Welles before him, who used this cinematographer, these two guys really understood how to use light and shadow. Another part of it was some of the shadows were really bizarre. The way that the one room peaked yeah. at, mm -hmm. up at the top, or the way that the house, where they put the camera in relation to the house, when he's outside the house after all that has happened with the widow, and he is like, children outside. <laughs> and, and, and it looks like him... He's in the in the foreground, and the house is a little bit in the to the side of him, and it it just looks like a wolf ready to come to the pig's house and knock on the door. He has that much sinister power. The dialogue is interesting, how it's stylized for sure, especially Lillian Gish's character. Everything mm -hmm. she says practically is a stylized lesson about life. Yeah, <laughs> or, or she she's she's very lyrical. Yeah, if you're going for realism, this is not the movie to watch. No, it's, yeah. it's surrealist. Yeah, for on, sure. On the and other... expressionist more than is surrealist. Yeah, but at the same time, even despite all the interesting, the crazy cinematography tricks. To a certain extent, it's scary because it's so understated. Just the way that he appears in the house and it's... The, him staying at the top of the... When he's at the basement, he's talking to him down the basement and... Just, I mean, they're just talking. Yeah. But it just, like, if he comes down, something bad is going to happen. And it's not like they overdo it with the musical overtones. No, and, and I mean, he's like probably one of the most underplayed, that sort of thriller I've watched. Modern movies tend to push the music a little more, some of the close-up scary shots of the person's face or something. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's very, you're right, it's very underplayed, but just as creepy and like, and it, Yeah, it, it does it, <laughs> it makes it even feel a little bit more creepy due to the, it makes you think about it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's what some movies, in order to give you that much, it, it made you 
think about it, just like if, if you watch Psycho, I mean, there's very little that's actually shown. However, in the Russian constructivist way that is all those quick clips one after the other, you know, showing all of the flailing that's going on and the struggle and the music, Bernard Herrmann music with the screeching violins, <laughs> but at, this, at the same time is making you think it's so much more dramatic because it has you exactly where Hitchcock wanted you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and Lawton, most of the time in this film, has you right where he wants you to anyway throughout as well. So we're running against our time limit probably for this. So, yeah. So, Brian, you want to go ahead, and that was actually a pretty good summary, but do you have a, a, a summary for us? This sharp and edgy suspense thriller is a unique gem of the cinematic world, and it sent precedent for much of the thriller genre, even all the way to today, considering Robert Mitchum's extremely amazing performance. Fabulous. Fantastic. Go check it out. Yes, it is completely worth your... It's only an hour and a half. Yeah, but yeah, ninety three minutes it, and it crams uh, a lot in there. Yes, and there is a release right now, a Criterion released uh, a version, and it's uh, very tip top. It went through a restoration, like many great films did during the nineteen nineties. And so now that we're into cinema selections, time for soundtrack. So, going on with my uh, Maze Dude Palooza, which if you <laughs> do not like, just email me and I'll stop. But until then, in honor of Halloween and scary movies and thrillers and our story school coming up, I picked Maze Dude does some creepy sort of songs. And this one's called Minotaur Nightmare, um, remix from God of War. I guess the story behind this, he was making it one night and his girlfriend was sleeping and apparently heard the music through his headphones and had nightmares. Um, wow. <laughs> and, wow. And because the next day he showed, he let her listen to it. She's like, that was in my dream last night. Um, <laughs> and so he thought it was an awesome piece. So anyways, Monitor Nightmares, very, I guess it's industrial waltz. So uh, enjoy. I, I'm pretty sure Maze Dude comes up with his own musical <laughs> genres. I think that's true. But um, enjoy if you can.
uh, welcome back. Hopefully you're not scared or um, hiding up in a closet upstairs because you can't get out of the house if you do that. Is there anyone still out there? <laughs> I hope so, because we're still at Bates Motel. I'm, not, I'm still not feeling any more comfortable about this place. Children? Oh. <laughs> that guy that came by to change the towels was very odd. I know. I didn't... Okay, next time you guys pick where we stay. All right. Okay. I'll tell you what. Mist was a better location than this place. <laughs> um, that's all I'm saying. I believe it. I mean, if you go to the motel, at least get those with the cores that can, like, vibrate the bed. <laughs> <laughs> like on X-Files. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so welcome back. We're going to now move into our story school. All right. So, part of the reason we switched things around today, besides having Brian here with us live, is uh, our story school this time is about horror, fear, that sort of idea in fiction and storytelling. Kind of a wide open subject. I guess I'll just mention straight up. I don't much care for horror films. I don't either. <laughs> I'm not either. I have to be in the mood for one, and they're usually the ones that I can laugh at as well as be horrified by, which there are not very many. <laughs> <laughs> now I will say, like some people really enjoy being scared, which I don't understand. My sister, when she was like in high school, loved going to scary movies, being scared. Of course, then she couldn't walk from the theater to her car. Without, you know, someone else being with her and they'd scream when, you know, anything would move. So I don't know why that was fun. Yeah, that's never been... I, I mentioned here before that movies could scare me pretty easily as a kid. I, I know the first time my parents tried to show me Star Wars and I was like six or seven, I would not finish Empire Strikes Back. I was just so petrified that... Of course, then years later I saw it and it was awesome. But I think the first movie that really kind of helped me appreciate scary things that was kind of my... Uh, your stepway, your your gateway drug? Gateway, I suppose. <laughs> was, was probably Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, I, I certainly closed my eyes through the whole arc bit. But uh, <laughs> after that, I felt like I could take on more stuff. I'm to think of it, I remember Temple of Doom actually doing quite a bit to me. It was all about the heart thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> was the heart thing. The whole human oh. sacrifice. No, I'll tell you what. I watched when I was young, Princess Bride. I could not watch it for years after because of the torture <laughs> oh, machine. Yeah. For for my I just uh, no now it's just hilarious but back then it it was like it like scarred me the, like oh that's horrible I can't believe it. there I, there are still movies that that creep me out as a kid that I still have problems with today The Little Mermaid is actually one of them <laughs> Ursula is scary <laughs> man <laughs> like she still she still creeps me out and the other one that I've never I've actually never gone back to see was Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know what? The blueberry used to freak <laughs> me out. Oh, I always, for me, it was the, the tunnel. Okay, the tunnel, yeah. It was the psychedelic tunnel. Yeah. Of, uh, who knows what. I, I did you know, not. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't remember that one, that moment in particular, <laughs> but I've heard about it. <laughs> yeah, with, with all the rhymes that uh, Gene Wilder There is was no doing, earthly way of knowing yes, all in which direction we are going. Yeah. Yeah. You put that in there, right there. Plus <laughs> the fact that all these kids are getting like killed off in this candy factory. <laughs> yeah, sucked into pipes and falling now, down chutes. I have this theory that writers who can write really disturbing things Simultaneously, can write really whimsical things. Roald Dahl is a perfect example of this. Mm -hmm. Like some of this stuff is very whimsical and childish. Some is just freaky. Miyazaki can do that sort of stuff, That's where true, yeah. you'll be have very beautiful things, then you have like no face, which is just yeah. creepy. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, a certain level of a, a certain type of imagination that can just push the boundaries on both ends. Mm -hmm. This kind of visceral reaction to both good and bad things. 
I think Stephen Moffat is very much the same way too. Head writer in Doctor Who. I mean, he can write some of the most just eccentric, zany kind of moments, but then he also taps into your childhood fears like few other writers can. And I haven't read much Stephen King, but I hear he's very good at doing the very primal mm-hmm. fears. I haven't watched actually any of his movies either. Yeah, I've like, never been a I've never been a Stephen King fan. I've seen a couple of, of Stephen King's movie adaptations. Yeah. And uh one of them being Misery, which I actually did quite like that one. Did you happen to I have not seen that. that I, no. no, I I've, uh, I it, saw it was quite good. In the in that it would go from whimsical in the way that the the antagonist is played by Kathy Bates and she is a she's wonderful at it. And what happens is her favorite author is taken off a, a road in a snowstorm and she rescues him mm. and he has two broken legs and she makes him stay there. Nobody knows where he is. She doesn't tell anyone and, and he can't. And she's crazy. And she turns out being completely crazy. But she always, when she's doing all these things to him, uh, when he's trying to get out of there and refuse everything, she has this whimsical attitude about <laughs> it all. And it's, that's the whimsical com- combined with terror. And I wonder if that's because there's this sort of, um, both of them are kind of off-center, off-the-norm. You know, you just twist it just enough and it becomes really whimsical and unique, or twist it just enough the other way and becomes the sort of thing you want to, you know, it's like a night. It's like change from a nightmare to a dream, that there's not actually probably that much of a mm. separation between the two. Sometimes your dreams, they don't make any sense, but you like them, and sometimes they're dreams and they don't make any sense, but they're they hit certain other parts of you. Mm. And I guess I would say from a writing point of view, tapping into those sort of fears is a very interest is a good way to hit your author or your reader's emotion. I think you don't like horror movies in particular because all they want to do is that. Yeah. I mean that there's no counterweight, there's no counterbalance, there's no it's just to make you feel like everything's horrible and scary and mean. In the case of these more whimsical turn it on the, on the whim sort of thing, I guess you can see another purpose behind it, like dealing with childhood fears or exploring you know, personal emotions. But yeah, when it's just about a guy that's going to go around and hack people up to pieces, I don't see any redeeming value in that. Like, I've, I've never seen the Saw movies. No. They I sound would, like I've, horrible movies. <laughs> I, I've seen a couple of the Saw movies. and Is there a redeeming stopped... thing, or is it mainly just to... No, and I, there's the, yes, there's the moral in which there's the guy that says, you know, that this is why you need to live life to the fullest. Okay, but I thought but... in order to do a film that would just convey that message, you had to do this? Yeah, seriously. <laughs> That's fine. I, but I stopped with the Saw series when I saw the one that the camera movement was so bad that it made me want to throw up. <laughs> I can See, and that's the other thing. Horror movies have this mentality for just churning out one after another. I mean, how many Chucky movies are there? Or how many Nightmare of Elm Street? or Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. They just churn so, out sequels. And you can tell that they're not really putting that much focus on the quality. I was thinking, I like thrillers, I like, like suspense. But I think part of it is, and we brought this up talking about uh, Night of the Hunter. That when you just have evil and your main character as sort trying to survive, I feel like that's a different movie. That's kind of a more existential or nihilistic movie than if it's evil versus some sort of other thing, as opposed to just I want to survive. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that just seems too bare bones to be worth putting me through all that. No, it's not emotion. having counterpoints. Yeah, no, I mean, not, you won't have to yeah. be like as good and angelic as is in Night of the Hunter, but some yeah, sort of like, contract. is there some sort of worth me being dragged through all this blood and guts and gore and stuff? On that note, what what do you think entices? Like, why do people like your sister, who's not who's not like a gothic person? No, and she doesn't sense. like him anymore. She wouldn't. 
But but what what draws us to that in the first place? Why do some people enjoy being scared just for being scared? I I think it, it might be partly for, and this is probably more for teenage girls. Mm. Partly, I think it's just an emotional rush. You know, you go you go with a bunch. You don't go by yourself. You go with a you know a friend or a couple friends. And you're all screaming together. It's like it's like riding a roller coaster that you're really afraid of doing, but you want to have that rush of the bottom falling out. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm um, not sure which chemical in the brain it is. Maybe adrenaline. <laughs> it, it's probably um, a rela- it's probably yeah. related to that. And, yeah, and in the same way. It, Movies that are just plain horror, just upfront all of the time horror, they're in a, in a way kind of like a drug in that you... I remember reading a story in which they were doing screenings of The Wizard of Oz. And there were obviously lots of children in the audience that they have there to make sure that... Because obviously this was a movie that was relatively geared towards children, at least part of it. And yeah. of course, what happened is they showed the more longer scenes in which the witch is there and she's basically... You know, she has her in the castle by this point, and she's the hourglass, I think, is going as well. And she's telling Dorothy all these explicit ways in which she's going to kill her and and like <laughs> uh, and how bad it's going to be and how, obviously, she had a very great deal as an actress of scare going for her. And <laughs> children in the late 1930s were not prepared for this. They simply yeah. were not prepared for this. They were running out of the theater crying. Oh, every, man. Was, yeah. <laughs> and so our tolerance, that's the word comes in as a drug kind of we're not mm. Wizard of Oz doesn't do anything for me anymore. We need to go to Saw. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> well, and, and the thing is, people like watching the B horror movies. They do it almost as a. They don't do it because they're scared, but they do it to laugh at. Part of almost. it is a diversion, and and having seen Evil Dead, I mean that that's oh. part of it. That that's pure diversionary uh, fun. It, <laughs> yeah, way, it's not even it's not even really gory, is it? Not that I remember. It just it's just funny. Yeah, it just yeah, it's and, just off kilter. It's just like yeah, and, it's like a. Macabre humor, kind of. Yes, that, and, 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 and it was a it was a, a fight or not a fight, but a, a sort of one upness between the director of Evil Dead and another director who did horror films whose name I can't remember. But they were <laughs> trying to do the ultimate film like this, where it was an entertainment horror th- yeah. thing together, and it gelled really mm-hmm. well. Those do, but and I think those kind of movies are in short supply. Everybody, a lot of people try to make them, but they just don't off as well or as original or something now why why do you guys think that we all tend to like suspense better what is it about suspense as opposed to more strict horror that we like because they, they're all along the same lines i would go to one of uh, hitchcock's old sayings and you're probably familiar with this brian where he compared one time the difference between cinema surprise and cinema suspense where surprise is two people are sitting at a table a bomb goes off just suddenly without any warning that's a surprise. It's a shock. You're like, ah, I can't believe that just happened. Suspense is you have two people sitting on the ta- at a table talking. There's a bomb under the table, and you show the audience that the bomb is there. <laughs> Suddenly, the audience is, is having a hard time paying attention to what the characters are saying because they're like, run, people. There <laughs> is a bomb under your table. And they're in suspense trying to figure – there's this tension to see what is going to happen next. That's better storytelling. It lasts longer, and it's, I think, more fulfilling. It is, and suspense has always done it much more for me than for horror. And having seen almost almost every film at Hitchcock, or at least everything that's been released that he's done, I, having seen it's is all about having you suspended in that position, not with this big surprise. But it's uh, sometimes it's uh, sometimes it's a blatant countdown. Um, in nineteen thirty six, he did a film called Sabotage. Have you ever seen that one? Mm-hmm. It's um, it's one of his best ones that he did before he came over to the U.S. And 
that's extremely good that has a, an actual bomb, mm. and <laughs> and uh, it works extremely well. It's actually based on a book called Secret Agent, which was written by Joseph Conrad, who wrote Heart of Darkness. Yes, right? he did Heart of Darkness. Okay, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I knew the name. And I, th- I like the idea of talking that it's the tension. It is in in many ways emotions in um in suspense and especially in movies. Sometimes the, the expectation is always worth more than the fulfillment in, mm. in many things in life. And to have that kind of dragged out. But I guess the difference is sometimes you have this suspense, but you know, at least you have this sort of safety knowing that you're never going to see this horrendous thing, maybe. you're Yeah, you're hopeful I, that it's not going to be like completely grounded. You feel like there's at least some hope of getting out of it. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to some, I think some of the more, and again, I'm just not speaking from experience, some, some horror movies I think, They'll give the suspense and then they'll actually go all the way through with it, which I guess is a good shock. But you want suspense to have some sort of worthwhile. worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, you can go through with it sometimes. I was trying to think. I had an idea of something where like, don't do, it, don't do, it, don't do, it, and then they did it, and you're like, <gasps> but then it it plays well in the movie. But I don't remember my example. Something that's probably closer to true. To, well, not real horror, but you were talking about camera movements in the Saw movie. Um, Cloverfield has a lot of mm-hmm. has that sort of thing but you know it's a very and it's a lot of this running away and kind of gore and it doesn't go over the line for me necessarily but I think I like it because it's a very personal story and and you had a hope that they could get through it I and mean, they didn't yeah I mean really. there's a bittersweet ending yeah it's about as it's about as sad as you get with me still really liking the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean it was in New York you figured it's a big city sure the, surely these people can get away from this thing um, <laughs> wow well that's a movie that beat me up watching it I remember yeah. watching it in the theater and as at the end I was just I was just worn out <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was an exhaustion which I movie. guess I, I guess that's kind of maybe what other people have maybe a higher threshold than I do like in horror movies Hmm. I don't have a particularly high threshold. Well, and I think though that again, that's the problem. Where, like Brian said, it becomes a drug where you got you have to become more and more yeah, has there, to be more gory, yeah, has to be more a violent. tolerance level to to just pure horror and and suspense. You can do it in so many different ways, and it's so much more complex. In the fact that I mean, getting back to Hitchcock, he was able to do seven seasons of Alfred Hitchcock Presents <laughs> and a few and more few more years of it as the Alfred Hitchcock Hour and it would be all these different stories and yet all throughout them there would be that focus and there would be that suspense of and it wouldn't always be like a twi- like a twisted plot at the end there would be something that fooled you some other way mm-hmm. and like I remember Hitchcock saying that he didn't like anything to be called tricks <laughs> and it was always methods or or he never wanted to cheapen himself in that way it was always with camera technique and recently we did i showed my family the birds again and and at the ending the ending just kind of lets go even though there was originally going to be a climactic scene in which the birds chase the car and it's a chase scene with the birds attacking the car that was supposed to have been in the end of birds originally yes uh which would have been more climactic Mm-hmm. But this end, they still would have escaped. But the uh, escape at the end, it left it left somebody it left some of them down because you wanted more of a reason why the birds are doing it. And I yeah. thought, and I thought, well, okay, we can go like a Japanese Godzilla movie and say that the aliens did it. That's, <laughs> that's half of all Godzilla movies. The aliens <laughs> did it, yeah. and that's why. Uh, but I mean, that's sort of going back to suspense when you say, well, it was the journey. You see, and sometimes people don't want to hear. Yes, it was the journey. You see. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. The Birds is probably the still the most infamous movie in my family's household because we watched it and I wonder how we many were all half of us were like, "What was the point of that?" Yeah, <laughs> it was so annoying. <laughs> and it was based on a 
I believe, Daphne du Maurier novel. I, yeah, I knew it was based on um, something. Same, I believe he also, or no, she also did Rebecca. Okay. Um, I believe, the original Rebecca, who also, which is also Hitchcock. Now, I think, what do you think? I feel like suspense works better generally in movies as opposed to books. Oh well, I mean, I guess well. in, in that in that sort of I guess more visceral style. Uh, I mean, it's very visual. That's now, true, now, granted, times. you can do. I mean, like Edgar Allan Poe does a a building thing in a lot of his short stories, like the Telltale Heart, where there's and then it's the same with movies. It, it spends a lot on the camera shots or the language and writing, and you can really do it if you have this constant. Well, and you use mystery a little bit more probably in writing, mm-hmm. like we talked about last episode. Although I guess you could say it's a different kind of suspense because certainly books have that you know that feeling where you gotta, gotta well yeah get to the next page, gotta keep reading. That's true. I guess I remember first seeing Jurassic Park, and when I was like twelve, with Zach was a little younger. My dad and Zach don't, and I didn't particularly do real well suspense. My dad still has trouble with certain movies, but Zach stood at the back of the theater ready to walk out for like most of the movie. He got through it. He got through it. But see, that was the first movie we had seen. With that kind of uh, Spielbergian suspense, you know, are they going to mm. get it? You know, the raptors are getting in, and you're yeah. like, oh no, they're all going to die. I I think horror, at least, depends on the depends on the fear of it going badly, mm. or whatever is usually dying. But yeah, um, and that was one film that kind of got me because that was more like more than the birds. That one was got me with the end where they're they get off the island and <laughs> and, and I was like. Oh, yeah. What did they and do I, next? Have, I remember being let down as a 12-year-old. The <laughs> ending. I was concerned about the ending, trying to analyze it. Oh, no. Uh, this is unrelated. If I read the book by the time, I would have said, why didn't the Compasongas mutilate uh, Richard Attenborough? Now, I, I would have to say, having, this is a sidetrack, having read the book before seeing the movie, at the time, I hated the movie. This would have made me hate the movie intensely. Now, I can now see them separately, and I enjoy the movie and enjoy the books, but back then, I just got reading the book. I'm like, this would be awesome. Then it's like, this is nothing like the book. No, <laughs> There's dinosaurs, but... Similarity ends there. But that's that's the, neither here nor there. Like, I guess I've written some, I guess what you could call horror-esque scenes. Stringfred has that, the mound, uh, which uh, my parents read that. They're like, did you write this thing? <laughs> it's kind of that tapping into that kind of just completely... It's messed up. It is severe. Well, and, and, and that's I, I, that might be the only thing I've read of yours that after reading I felt kind of nauseous <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> then I did what I want, and I think it works again for me. I like it in context. It's it's one thing, mm-hmm. but it's not everything. <laughs> Interesting side note here. My sister Danielle, when she read uh, Stern and Fred, she admitted to me that she skipped over some of the chapters that that featured the Madman. I, she was like, eh, they're boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I would do him quite... Now, that chapter in the mound, I would do the same. Yeah. But in some ways, I could did him, I might do different now, but that's neither here nor there either. It was just a funny reaction. Yeah. Like, Insan- <laughs> Insanity is boring. <laughs> well, and then, like, uh, Alkezer, I guess, in... Um, in the Golgotha? In Gol- he's kind of, he has some aspects of that sort of... But here's a, another thing I had written down. Psychological horror versus physical horror. Explain. Well, physical horror is that gory. Okay, yeah. That I, you could yeah. define somewhere else, but you know, mm-hmm. to me, I don't want to watch it not because it scares me, because I just don't want to watch it. I don't want to yeah. see someone beheaded or beat up yeah. or tortured. I mean, yeah, that's just painful. But psychological horror, I guess, is closer to suspense, more tapping into that. 
Yeah. It, and it's actually probably deeper. Oftentimes, yeah, not seeing what's going on sometimes and, or may, and maybe just hearing sounds and stuff is more effective. One movie I, I keep thinking about in the terms of that's on this line between horror and suspense or is both, at least, is Alien. Which yes. I I love that movie. It's actually it, my one of my favorite movies of that genre in particular, in that it has suspense and horror in it, but the horror is exclusive and very compartmentalized. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, but at the same time, it pulls it off so well, mm-hmm. and probably because it's filmed in a classical way, I would argue, compared to any of the other in the series or many movies made <laughs> after it. Yeah. In which it took its time and established everything, mm-hmm. and then you are in a sense of dread for what an hour, <laughs> so, and and it really pulls you in. And then with going back to psychological horror, that's what's important is to put you into the mind of the character that mm-hmm. we're centered on. What he or she is feeling is something going to go one way or another. Do we know that or not? And we certainly do that with Sigourney Weaver and Alien. Yeah, that's what the focus of it is. You have to have that character where you can. It's good to have many characters in something, but thankfully with horror movies, you get to whittle down and <laughs> have a character that that yeah. ends up staying and kind of like Survivor before Survivor existed. <laughs> yeah, only they get killed. Yeah, no, it, it's true. And I remember one of my initial reactions to that was thinking, "This is not a movie I would normally like." There's a woman that's trapped in this place with this mon- all alone with this monster, and there's creaky things and. Mm-hmm. This is not the sort of thing I would normally like, and yet I'm loving it. So There's a woman being terrorized in her underwear, and yet you <laughs> are able to handle it quite well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know what? I guess now that you start talking like that, you know, I watched the first seven seasons of X-Files, and they often are on that line of horror. I mean, depending on the episode. I mean, sometimes more sci-fi or more, more horror, mystery. Yeah. Or sometimes fantasy. Like this is some, I mean, it's all over the place. It's all over that sort of between, you know, crime to horror to sci-fi, but... There's some really freaky ones, like there's one where they're stuck on a ice base and there's this creature infecting them, they don't know who's been infected, which is basically the exact thing that looks like this new Thing movie is that I watched mm-hmm. on X-Files back in season one. I don't know why it's a movie now. <laughs> um, but there was one episode, and it was even before it started, it had, that we w- refused to watch. I mean, I'll never watch again. But even wow. on the TV, it's like some mature audiences, or, you know, it was even, and oh. there was this scene of these these, like, we called them cavemen. They were like inbred, just like dehumanized humans. They the scene when they're just beating pe- I mean, beating this one innocent. It was just way over the line. But most times, X Files really play that line pretty well between too much gore and mostly suspense. It had to have a point. Yeah, and, 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 and that's a lot of point what, of what of what suspense and horror. At least if you're going to do good horror, good is, horror, it has to have a point. Now, have you and, seen and like purpose. the like Line of the Living Dead? Like my mom. Yes, I, I, saw the, I, saw the, I saw the original Night of the Living Dead, and I wasn't all that impressed. Okay, by it, well, she watched it when I, she was the it, whole yeah, zombie it, genre. I, it, I after watching it, it was one of those '60s movies. I, I kind of have a bias towards movies about the '60s. <laughs> I'm very particular about which ones I like, and there are some that I can say this is perfect for its time, <laughs> and maybe Night of the Living Dead was perfect for its time, but nowadays it doesn't. So what's, have that much of an impact. What's with the zombies genre? I don't... Zombies don't it's do all the rage right now. I know. And, and I don't get it. it because, I, I can run away from really slow things. <laughs> Even well, I do. I guess there's this fear that you can't really stop them because they're already dead. But right. when you have that sort of hopelessness, it stops being it, something you want like to do. It's like a wet blanket over you. Yeah. Right. I mean, when, when there's like, it's just going to keep coming, keep coming, and the best we can hope for is to eke out this lame existence. Yeah. Uh, 
it's not something I want to watch. Yeah, you have to go, I, I, I don't want to go like through. To get away from it. Yeah, I don't want to go through all that and then have that be my ending. And it's it's never made sense to me. Some people who say, "Yeah, zombie stuff. It's it's fun." I'm like, look, if the whole concept of a zombie <laughs> infection is that like millions of people are dead. <laughs> like, how is this a fun story? <laughs> so, all you zombie lovers out there, we don't like you. Uh, <laughs> okay, we like you, but we don't understand you. Yeah, yeah. So, have you read Keith's zombie story? That's a different take. No, I, I I still need to. I forgot that. So because it's more focused on the survivors and the zombies, so uh-huh. it's it's uh it's not really horror. It's probably a better way to, better place to concentrate on if we're going to be in the least bit original with a zombie. Yeah, story. well, that's true. Uh, that's true. Yeah, that it's kind of part of the reason why I can't really get as enthusiastic by Shaun of the Dead as some people do. But yeah, I, that was uh, <laughs> I saw it once and I thought, yeah, that's really original. And at the end of the day, there wasn't much else to grab on to. <laughs> yeah. and it, yeah. it was it was a, a one off. Yeah, maybe I enjoyed Hot Fuzz a lot more. But again, that's because I can appreciate the cop genre more than the zombie mm. genre. Okay, we'll finish off. How about just last minute, any other things that freaked you out when you were a kid? <laughs> uh, mine, I had to say, Pinocchio Pleasure Island. Oh, yeah. That was oh, messed up. Yes. My my sisters still hate Pinocchio. They will not watch <laughs> Pinocchio. After, and I'm talking Disney, Disney's ex- another example of those very high, you know, whimsical to just mm-hmm. terrifying. And I think anyone who can get in the minds of a kid, and this is what Night of the Hunter does really well, that kind of nightmarish feel mm-hmm. very quickly changes into... Alice, oh. Alice in Wonderland. I, I, oh, I can I, see that. I love Alice in Wonderland, but I can see that. I have not rewatched Alice in Wonderland. I hated it the, the first time I saw it. There was a PBS version with a Jabberwocky that used to scare me a lot. Like this live dragon Jabberwocky. Mm-hmm. But, well, for me, actually, it was a never-ending story. When I was very little. <laughs> but then when I started loving yeah, it when yeah. it was later. But at yeah. the beginning, with all the scary imagery, I can't remember who it was I was talking to about it, but I, I told them there's just the title of the movie. And, of course, they were from about the same age. And he said, oh, all the scary stuff. <laughs> with, the, with the wolf. And, all, yeah. and I was like, oh, yeah, this, right. See, so no, I didn't really I, think of it that I way. I wish yeah. I could point to a specific 80s fantasy movie that, that kind of turned me off of fantasy in general at that age. Because I know I didn't see Labyrinth or Dark Crystal, which I would have been terrified by. Yeah. <laughs> Labyrinth would be, yeah, that's pretty scary, too, if you're young. I, and I, I get, saw that when I was young. I don't think I understood. Did it. <laughs> and sometimes I mean, that's scary. I think I mean, that's Alice in Wonderland sometimes. Just yeah. it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. an off you're just out um let go. Alice in Wonderland is one of those kids' books that only adults like. Mm-hmm. The kids don't like it. Yeah. Generally. No, no. That's, that's probably true. I'm trying to think if there's any other ones that Well, I guess you can say this for fear, and, and we all just attested to it. It sticks with you. Mm-hmm. I mean, those sort of scenes, suspense, or whatever on a scale, you don't tend to forget. I mean, it gets pretty deep in. Yeah. This, especially I, as a kid. I, I, I can pretty vividly remember some of the nightmares that I had as a kid, or at least the elements of the bet that really scared me. I remember having one regarding Looney Tunes, which Looney Tunes can be quite violent sometimes, <laughs> and in a, twisted, uh-huh. in a twisted nightmare, it could, it could go quite awry. Cliffs and yeah, just, falling off buildings. Yeah, or, or just, even like buzz saws. And, yeah. It, yeah. Oh, speaking of, the end of Roger Rabbit. Oh, yeah. I, oh. <laughs> I, I didn't see that till I was in college, and I'm so was, thankful. No, I saw that when it... I don't think I saw it in the theater, but right when it came out, I know I saw it. It's yeah. a kid's movie. It's um, cartoons. Yeah, and, and I never thought of Christopher Lloyd the same way ever again. <laughs> As Doctor... Yeah. Yeah, with the... Uh, the eyeball. The eyes. The, yeah. The, yeah, the eyes. Well, I... 
the part that got me was like the the red lines oh, going yeah. through his eyes, like the mm-hmm. dem- that was that's used in cartoons often to, to you know show like insanity, mm-hmm. and uh, that, that is really effective. Yeah, it just it's just pushing things all, just so much farther. Yeah, just and, out of out of normal what we would call normal. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned on here before, but also, honey, I shrunk the kids. The the image of like of. At some point, aren't they like floating in Cheerios or something? Yeah, yeah. And like, and yeah, possibly yeah, be eaten. Yeah, possibly be eaten. That scared me. I like had sleepless nights for that. As, even from like the trailer, I was I, it freaked me out. So I guess if you want to do something suspenseful or horror horrific, just put something that's off enough, you know. And I guess I guess that's my thing from Mister and Fred. That whole scene was just it was so rotted yeah. out, you know. Which, and going back to Night of the Hunter, I think the preacher character, not only is he kind of a twisted version of, of a clergyman, but in a sense he's a kind of a twisted version of a father. I mean, I think a lot of us as a kid at some point were scared of our dad. Yeah. He comes back from bad day at work. He, you know, <laughs> he's he, holding dinner hostage. Oh, yeah. That was, I mean, whoever had that as a... <laughs> Uh, as a, I mean, we, that was a, that was a everybody's good, experience. Scene. Maybe a small variation on something like that. Maybe you have to eat your peas first before well, you can eat your dessert. But this was, you know, tell me where the ten thousand well, dollars is, or you won't. Well, eat. and it was like yeah. a sort of it was like the sort of torture you would see in a in like some sort of spy drama. Is the do this or this yes. will ha- you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, with Sean Connery and Goldfinger with the that laser moving up between his legs. <laughs> <laughs> that was ah, and. <laughs> Game's a foot, Trebek. And uh, especially with <laughs> especially with uh, with Robert Mitchum's character, I got a lot of Hannibal Lecter feeling mm-hmm. coming off. Yeah. Uh, Way before Hannibal Lecter. Yes, it's, and that kind of a he. I think he's just about as imprintable of a of a villain as Hannibal Lecter is. I'd say. I think I saw when I looked up the movie in on Wikipedia. I think I saw that character wound up on the American Film Institute's list of top villains. Yeah, if not best performed villains. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. That that definitely as well. Yeah, I think that's a good wrap. I think that's something mm-hmm. So, uh, on our comment board, we'd like to hear your childhood fears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and when you're writing your story, use. Use scariness with discretion, please. <laughs> don't don't be scary just for scary's sake, because yeah. that's that's not necessarily helpful. Especially this may be one last tangent, but it, it, I think it's interesting when you look in the Bible how many times it tells us be not afraid. And well, it, I was gonna bring that up with uh, Hanai the Hunter because that's kind of the whole uh, what yeah. is, perfect love drives out fear. Yeah, f- yeah. and faith defeats. And faith and love defeat, in this case, almost pure evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he's very demonic in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some food for thought. Tim, uh, well, let's do our contact info. Yes. So uh, you can get a hold of us. Well, visit our website first at derailedtrainsofthought.blogspot.com. Um, iTunes, well, by the time this is out, it should be fixed. Something's going kind of wrong right now. Yeah, hopefully it's, hopefully it's working by the time you hear this. Don't forget that we also have our email address, derailedtrains at gmail.com things will be a little different uh, for, for us for a little while. And I think we're only going to have one episode come out in the month of November due to uh, Nick's special delivery coming Yes. Soon. So, yes, my daughter yeah. will be do- born uh, soon. Natasha will be induced, well, probably by the time this comes out. Yeah. So by, t- so by the time this comes out, you may have a new member to your family. Exactly. Already. It should be exciting. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, like I said, probably only one episode come out in November. And probably only one in December, too. Yeah. Maybe. Well, well, we'll the holidays. See. Yeah, it depends. So catch up on the old ones. I guess that's oh oh soundtrack time, yeah. time to wrap it up and uh, we'll introduce my soundtrack which I totally had prepared ahead of time. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> this soundtrack this is from Super Mario World with a bit of Final Fantasy mixed in. The name of the song is Koopa versus Kefka and 
and the song is pretty much exactly as it sounds. It's kind of a, a piano mix between Dancing Mad, Kefka's main theme, and sub-castle background music. One of, you know, one of Koopa's uh, castle songs. And this is remixed by Dusu, or D-H-S-U. Whoever you are, you need to pick a more easily pronounceable <laughs> name. Like Maze do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps up episode 22. Uh, this has been Nick. This has been Tim. This has been Brian. And I don't think I'm sleeping tonight. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.
children. Children.